Good morning. Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter 9. Um, we are going to look at the first half of Daniel chapter 9 today. Uh, it's the prayer of Daniel. Um, and then we'll be in the second half next week. Um, and next week contains probably some of, from what I've read and have been reading, uh, the hardest and most difficult understa- to understand verses in the entire Old Testament. So that's next week. So come back for that. Um, it's going to be awesome. We're, next week we'll look at cha- uh, verses 20 through 27. The first four verses uh, are very easy to understand. The second four verses are probably the most controversial in the Old Testament. So uh, that'll be fun. But today we are going to look at Daniel chapter 9 verses 1 through 19. And this is his prayer. So if you're able to, uh, I'd love for you to stand with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 19, uh, and then I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And of course, uh, you'll say, thanks be to God. And as you say, thanks be to God, it's just an opportunity for you to thank the Lord for being so kind to, to us, to speak to us through his word and give it to us in written form. And also, let it be for you when you say thanks, uh, a moment where you say, the things that I hear today and learn, I want to say yes and obey them. So... Chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made my confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted acted wickedly and rebelled, turned aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your... Servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings and to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. It is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamities and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people up out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself at this day, we have sinned 
and done wickedly. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would um, use your word this morning as we look at the prayer of this great man from 2,500 years ago and that you would use it this morning for us, that we would see and understand and know more about your design in prayer and that, um, God, we would be people of prayer and that we would deeply want to uh, commune with you um, each day in prayer. We, uh, we pray that you would help us see Christ in this text also and know that all of our only hope comes in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're not familiar with what's going on here, uh, Israel has been exiled. They, they, their land has been taken from them and they've been shipped out to Babylon and they have been there as rebels of God because they have been totally unrepentant of their sin. And because they've been unrepentant of their sin, they've been out there for about 70 years. Uh, the Babylons have just been overthrown. You can see it in the, verse, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahurus, the descent of Amid. So the Babylonians have been taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. And this is that, that second uh, kingdom that has come in. But they're still, the, Israelites, the Israelites are still in exile. They're not home. And so Daniel, uh, on behalf of his people Israel goes to the Lord in prayer and, and, and begs and petitions the Lord that they would not be uh, in exile anymore, but instead would get to go home. That's, that's, the, that's the overall kind of point of what we see in the prayer of chapter 9. Now, one commentator says this. Sidney Gradanus um, writes a lot of things on how to see Christ in, in, in books of the Bible. This is, this is good. Uh, kind of helpful, but sometimes when you read it, you're like, okay, then what? He says this, Daniel's beautiful prayer is not a model for Christian prayer. <laughs> okay. But a unique prayer for a specific time in redemptive history. Israel's in exile, and Daniel realizes that the 70 years foretold by Jeremiah, Jeremiah are almost up. And he knows about the covenant curse brought about the desolation, the word used in every chapter on covenant blessings and curses. And he also knows that in the same chapter, God promised, if they confess their iniquity, I'll remember my covenant with Jacob. So it's not a prayer for us to model after. And so what's it there for? How do we use it? Um, what, if anything, can we get out of this text? Meaning, if it's a specific prayer prayed by a specific person for a specific people of God at a specific time, then how do we rightly interpret that prayer 2,500 years later and correctly apply it to us in 2021? Because 
Israel's not the church. There's continuity, but there's discontinuity. They were in exile. We're not. They were a theocracy. We're not. They were the people of God who had been taken away out of the land of God. This is just America. Like, there's so many different things that it's not. So how do we rightly understand it? Because, you know, America's not Israel um, as much as we think it might be. Um, so how do you understand it? And so what I want to do today is this. And by the Lord's grace, we can benefit from this study of Daniel's 9, that we can all learn some things together about prayer. There are some things we can learn about prayer. That, that just because that's not what it means doesn't mean that we can't apply it, right? Um, and so what does God want us to know about prayer? That's the first thing. I think he does want us to know some things. Um, what does God want us to know about him? And how can we apply this text to our lives? So that's, that's really what I want to kind of do as we look at Daniel chapter 9. And I think there's five things that we can see about prayer whenever we're looking at this text. So what, what do you think about, just kind of let this be the, the, the question you are asking yourself as we go through this. What, what do you think about prayer? What is it that you think about prayer? Um, Sinclair Ferguson says, Prayer is an expression of what we know of God and of what we know of ourselves. It's not just what we know of God, but it's also something that we know about ourselves. John Owen, Puritan from a few hundred years ago, says, What an individual is in secret on his knees before God, that he is, and no more. What an individual is in secret on his knees, that is what he is, and no more. Which means, um, as God's people, we should be people of prayer. And so Daniel records this prayer. Now, we know later on in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus is doing the Sermon on the Mount <clears throat> and he says, whenever you pray, go into the secret place. Don't anybody let it know what you're doing. You know, pray in secret so that you're not like the hypocrites. He's not banning public prayer. He's just saying, don't pray publicly in such a way that makes everybody think that you're awesome. And so the fact that Daniel wrote this down, which is a pretty public thing to do, uh, doesn't mean that was wrong, right? So Daniel was right to write it. And the reason why he's recording his prayer is so that Israel can see the connection between the prayer of Daniel and how God answers this prayer for Israel and thus restores them eventually. So um, let's, let's look at the text. And what we're going to see is uh, five guidelines to effective prayer. Now, these are not the exclusive five. Uh, this is just the five that I can see in the text. You could go all throughout the scriptures and put all kinds of more guidelines, all right? So these aren't the five, exhaustive. These are just five of them. But let's look at this and see what they are. In the first year of Darius, a descent, a descent by descent of Mede, who was made king of the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year uh, of his reign, this is around 539 B.C., um, I, Daniel, and then what it, look what it says there perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely the 70 years. So um, Daniel's reading the Bible, Jeremiah specifically, chapter 25, probably through 29, I'm going to quote the verses, and by reading the Bible, he's pushed to pray. So first guideline for effective prayer is this. Number one, right now, let your prayers flow from the study 
of the scriptures. Let your prayers flow from the study of your scriptures. Daniel perceives in the books as he's studying scripture, he's led to pray. That the same should happen for us. As we study the scriptures, we should be pushed to pray. Now, John Calvin makes this very, very astute point here. Because if we know anything about Daniel, he, he knows how to do dreams and interpretations, right? And so Calvin says, though Daniel was an interpreter of dreams, he was not so elated with confidence or pride as to despise the teaching of the scriptures delivered by the prophets. So what, Daniel's, what Calvin's saying is, Daniel puts, even him who knows dreams and interpreters, puts his confidence in the scriptures above his own ability to know dreams and interpretations. Because the scriptures is where God speaks. And that's where all of our confidence should be. And so when we're reading the Bible which is something that we all should be doing as believers in Christ. When we're reading the Bible and God's word, God's word speaks to us about our sin, about our walk with Christ, about our witnessing or lack thereof, about the great promises that he's given to us in Christ and great promises that he's promised throughout all creation, about anything, it should drive us to pray as we read the Bible. Study the Bible and pray is what we hear so often. You should study the Bible and pray. You should study the Bible and pray. What should I do about this right here, Fudd? Well, probably you should start out with studying the Bible and pray. It's one of the things I say quite often, right? That's what people say. And eventually, at the very end of the sermon, when you finally get to an application, the point is, read your Bible and pray. Study the Bible and pray is what we hear. Daniel's telling us, study the Bible so you will pray. Study the Bible so you will pray, and so you will pray correctly. Studying the scriptures is key. This is what he does, and that leads him to pray. Um, Sinclair Ferguson said, Faith is not a matter of looking within ourselves to see how much we feel capable of being able to pray and request things. That's not what faith is. Faith does is search the scriptures to see what God's promised to do, which is what Daniel did, and we should do no less than that. And that's what leads him to pray as he knows the scriptures. So what is Daniel studying in Jeremiah what leads him to pray? Well, he's studying, as I said, Jeremiah chapter 25, probably through 29. I'm going to zoom in on a couple of verses so you can know. Remember, they're in exile and they've been in exile some 70 years. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, says some things about this that would happen. He says in Jeremiah 25, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Hmm. Daniel's doing some math. Okay, 70 years. Then after these 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Oh, I just, I just saw that happen. The Medo-Persian Empire just took off. Go to Jeremiah 29, not 11, 10. Like 10, Jeremiah 29, 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I'll fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Okay, well, that sounds like some great news then. I'm doing some math. Babylon's been taken over. It's been about 70 years because Daniel's, you know, he's in the 80-year range. And so he's thinking to himself, okay, if that's the case, well then, hey, we're in the prime time spot to actually, for this thing to be over. Daniel knew all this, and he knew that the 70-year period was coming to a close. And, moreover, Daniel knew his Bible also. He knew because Solomon had told them a long time ago in 1 Kings chapter 8, if y'all remember this, whenever we were studying through 1 Kings, 
Um, I know y'all do. It was, chapter, it was when I preached the sermon on chapters 5 through 9. Do y'all remember that? I, I'm glad you do. Um, whenever, whenever Solomon wrote this or said this, uh, if you ever find yourself held captive by people, what you should do is pray that the Lord will forgive you of your sin because you're held captive. And if you do, then he'll restore you. This is what it says in 1 Kings. I'll start at verse 44. If your people go out into battle against their enemy by whatever uh, way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord towards the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one else who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they're carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. That sounds kind of familiar. That's what's happened. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying, we've sinned and we've acted perversely and wickedly if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave their fathers, the cities that you have chosen and the house that I have built in your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your heritage which brought you out of Egypt in the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and let the plea of your people Israel giving ear to them whatever they call to you. For you separated them from all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord our God. So if you ever find yourself in captive, you should pray and repent of your sin, and God will forgive you and bring you back. And so Daniel is reading the scriptures and seeing if you, whenever Jeremiah says, you're going to find yourself after 70 years that the Lord's going to restore you. And he knew, because Solomon had said, if you ever find yourself you know, in the middle of exile, then you should pray. And so Daniel's putting all this together. And Daniel knew, okay, what I need to do then is go to the Lord uh, and pray. And so I'm going to go pray to the Lord, confess our sin, and ask for him to restore us. And that's what he does. And so Daniel prayed on behalf of his people, repenting of their sin and asking God to end the exile and bring them back to the promised land. Now, knowing that Daniel did this should cause you and I to reflect and ask ourselves, do I not pray as I ought to because I don't read the Bible as I should? That's what it should cause us to say. Do I not read the Bible enough that I also, as I am reading the scriptures, I'm pushed to pray about things? One commentator challenges us very powerfully. He says, only as we deepen in our understanding of God as revealed in the Bible will our praying become richer and more soundly based on actually who God is. And so the first principle that we want to see here is that we should let our prayers flow from the study of scriptures. Daniel read and he remembered God's promises and he remembered what Solomon has said and he saw the promises made in Jeremiah and he knew that God never breaks promises. And the same is for us. As we read scripture, we'll remember that God never breaks promises. And so when we're reading and we see the great promises of, of, of God for us in the scriptures, it should cause us to pray. John Piper says it this way. 
where the mind isn't brimming with the Bible, the heart is generally not brimming with prayer. So read the scriptures and pray. Read the scriptures so that you will pray and pray correctly. First guideline, he's perceiving in the scriptures. So that's the first one. Let your prayers, let your prayers flow from your study of the scriptures. <clears throat> then we see in verse 3, we haven't even gotten to the prayer part. We haven't even gotten to where he starts talking. Then I turn my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Verse, verse, that's verse 3. So the second thing we see is this. Um, let your prayers flow from a humble and contrite heart. When you pray, let your prayers flow from a humble and contrite heart. Arthur Pink on prayer says, Prayer is not so much as an act as it is an attitude. Prayer is an attitude of dependency and our dependency on God. Now, Daniel approaches him, seeking him by prayers and pleas with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, I don't know if you've ever even seen sackcloth or put ashes on yourself when you pray. And that's not generally the point, right? Uh, And maybe you haven't fasted. But the point is that we see Daniel demonstrating physically a humble and contrite heart. That's the point, that he has a humble and contrite heart. And so when we hear this, it can sound terribly daunting that this is something that we need to have. We need to have a humble and contrite heart like Daniel, where he approached God this way, and we need to do this as well. And when we do this, it can be something that we think we need to conjure up within ourselves a great humility on our own to be able to finally come before the Lord and be willing to even like bow down in prayer before him. That is not the way that we should be thinking about it. Uh, that is what Daniel did in the Old Testament. We who are in Christ have a little bit of a different situation. He, he was probably in Christ as well, but looking at it from the other side of the cross, we're on this side, right? And so the humble and contrite heart that's needed for you to go to the Lord in prayer is not something you conjure up, but instead has already been freely given to you in Christ. That's amazing, right? The gift of this humble and contrite heart has been given to us already in Christ. And so we don't conjure this up. It's already made available to us in the gospel. When Jesus died for us on the cross, and then we, by repentance and faith, have been forgiven and declared a child of God, you are a daughter of the king now. You are a son of the king now. And you've been cleansed. You have been given a humble and contrite heart now that you can go straight after God the Father. Now, I know that you and I still live continually in sin, Romans 7. The things that I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. I get that, right? But that's what continual repentance is about. Not to get saved again, but to remind yourself of this status that you've been given in the gospel. I have been given the humble and contrite heart. I've been given a clean heart. My seminary professor, I think I've told this before, but my seminary professor has already given one, maybe one of the best illustrations that I can think of to try to make this something that can really drive you home when it comes to prayer. At seminary, uh, he had like uh, his own little office, and outside of his office, the, the secretary uh, was outside of his office at the big desk that you had to walk around that stopped everybody that had come through the first door to be able to get to him. 
And she was there to kind of protect his time from any visitors that would come in, from entering his office. And they'd have to speak with her first, the, the first wall of defense. And of course, if you did get past her, you had his closed door uh, to which if you opened, you know, he had his desk and then him. It was very difficult to get to, not just him, but it, really any seminary professor. But that's just my opinion. So back to the story. And he told the story of one day of his, chil- his children, his own children, his little, you know, four-year-old coming to visit him one day. And that child, as it walked into the the office, thought nothing of the secretary, just breezed right past the secretary, opened up the door, walked right around the desk, and crawled right up into his lap, as if all the protocols of his time in the child's mind were completely meaningless. In a sense, this is the relationship we have with God the Father because of Jesus in prayer. We can just walk straight up to God and tell him everything that's going on in our mind. So when we say a humble and contrite heart, just think of a four-year-old's mind when he wants to hop up in his daddy's lap. He's not thinking of anything, but that's my dad. And I can go straight to him anytime I want to. Nothing keeps me from him. And that's the relationship we have with God the Father because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. We approach the God the Father with a humble and contrite heart because Jesus has changed our heart and cleansed us. As Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That four-year-old walks up to our laps with a whole lot of confidence because he knows he's never been rejected, right? So let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Hebrews 4.16 And so the second thing we see here is let your prayers flow from a humble and contrite heart, which has been readily made available to you in the gospel. You have complete confidence to do this. Now, back to the text here. Daniel did this, what I said, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes because he was seeking God on behalf of his people, Israel. Daniel was displaying visibly lament on behalf of the people of Israel because of their sin. But it reminds us, of course, to pray with a humble and contrite heart. Now, uh, if you grew up in church ever, uh, you probably heard this little four-point little way to always pray. And it's acts, uh, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. If you don't know how to pray, use that as your outline. Adoration, adore Jesus. Confession, confess your sin. Thanksgiving, thank God for everything he's done. Supplication, finally ask about yourself. Like, what are the things I need? Whenever I was a youth minister, my kids couldn't remember that, so I made it even easier. I just made pray. I just took acts and literally just made easier words to understand besides adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and I just put it as pray. Praise, repent, appreciation, yourself. Like, praise God, then repent of your sin, appreciation, thank God for everything, and then finally yourself at the end. This is what I need, Lord. But he's going to follow the similar kind of thing. He's going to leave one of them out. Um, but, you know, it's Daniel. You can do what he wants. Um, but what we're going to see, though, is he starts off with that. He starts with adoration. He starts with praise. And so finally, as we get to the prayer here, seeking him by prayer and pleas with mercy and thanksgiving, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, watch this, verse 4 where he just leads off with adoration. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. I read it again. O Lord, 
the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Not, dear God, I'm in trouble, I need help. It's not that. If you do that, I'm not saying that's bad. I know that at some point it's like, that's all you can do. I, I'm in big trouble, God, <laughs> and I need your help. Dear Lord, please help. It, it can, if you do that, fine. But just let's notice what he does, right? Number three, let your prayers be filled with adoration and praise. Let your prayers be filled with adoration and praise. The, <coughs> the goal is the glory of God. If you look at the very end of verse 19, he says, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, forgive. Pay attention tonight, do not delay. For your own sake. For your own sake. Daniel loves the glory of God, and he knows that God is jealous for his own glory. And so he's going to begin prayers with adoration and praise because he knows that God is jealous of the glory of God, and Daniel loved the glory of God. And so he's going to adore him and praise him for his glory. Sinclair Ferguson says, True prayers always seek the glory of God. True prayers always seek the glory of God. Daniel's ultimate motive for prayer was the glory of God because it was the great motive that he had for living. And so let your prayers be filled with adoration and praise. You can see it as it reads in verse 4. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Just consider the adoration and praise given to us in that little short phrase. It's remarkable and extremely powerful as you read that he's a great and awesome God who always keeps covenant, who always had steadfast love to those who love him, to those who are his children. Sometimes, as I said, when we pray, we can be under such deep burdens to make our needs known. We don't stop and consider the actual magnitude to whom we're actually praying. We're we're praying to God, the creator of all things. And so first, sometimes... It's good to pause before we unload the laundry list to just adore and praise him. Just adore and praise him. You're not wrong if you start right off. But sometimes it's good just to remember to whom we pray. Dale Ralph Davis says it this way. I really like this. God is both fearful and faithful. He is both good and great. He is the one who makes us tremble and the one who keeps us secure. Daniel teaches us how to adore and to rejoice over God genuinely. And then he goes on to say this, um, that when we know and understand exactly who we're talking to, we should sometimes feel the need to put the petitions aside, what we need. Just put those aside and just keep going on with adorations and praises. Sometimes our prayers would just be that. Whenever we recognize who it is we're talking to. So the third element of prayer is adoration and praise. Uh, Guideline. Number four, let your prayers contain the element of confession and repentance. So we're getting into uh, this big section, 5 through 14, where we get into kind of the meat of what he's praying. And it's because of what's going on that there's so much of confession. In this text, Daniel, as I said, is praying on behalf of the nation of Israel. And the point is... That he was, um, as I read in Gradanus, that he was uh, praying on behalf of Israel for specific people of God at a specific time for a specific reason. And so that's why Daniel was doing this. Uh, And so there, as I said, some elements of this confession that we can receive and put into practice in our everyday life. um, But this was what Daniel's calling was at the particular time. Notice 
as we, as we make an application, though, like Daniel's confession for Israel, but for ourselves, let your prayer contain the element of confession and repentance for yourself, right? And so notice when he does this, notice the words that he uses. He's very precise. He doesn't kind of half say it. I'm just going to read the words he uses from verses 5 through 14. I've sinned, I've done, we've, I've sinned, uh, we've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, rebelled and turned away, we've not listened, disloyalty, we're open to public shame, we've sinned, rebelled, not obeyed, broken your law and turned away, away refused to obey, sinned, we have iniquities, we've not obeyed, we've sinned, we've acted wickedly. And so he's putting the words, the actual words directly into what he knows uh, that Israel has done. He puts himself, interestingly enough, now, if you've been with us through the book of Daniel, one thing that we've known is from a child to 80, he has lived righteously. Considerably, most of these things that Israel is guilty of, Daniel specifically is likely not. You know, he, he didn't eat of the king uh, of Babylon's food, instead ate the vegetables. He, from all what we can tell, prayed the whole time, stayed righteously at uh, so close to God that whenever there was need, that he would rightly interpret things because he walked with the Lord. Daniel lived, from all intents and purposes we know of, a very righteous life. But Daniel puts himself on the side of God's rebellious people in this confession by using we and us and our multiple times. He's calling himself and putting himself in the position of Israel. He's part of the nation of Israel, and he recognizes Israel's exile is just and right, and Israel has done these things against God. And he's saying, I'm part of this. And he's saying that um, because of that, I'm part of needing to confess and repent. And I'm actually coming in place of all of Israel and confessing on, on behalf of them. And so as we're seeing this, I want you to see kind of four elements of confession for Daniel. So there's going to be four subpoints under four. We can start seeing them here. Go ahead and put up the first one there. Four elements of Daniel's confession. Um, the first element is right there in verses seven and eight. So let's, let's read uh, down to that point. O Lord, great awesome God, verse five, we have sinned and done wrong and acted weakly and rebelled, uh, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We not listen, your servants and the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, to all the people of Israel, to you, O Lord, here it is, belongs righteousness. So he's saying, we've sinned, but to us open shame. Since we've sinned, and I know that we are a sinner, and you've exiled us, you have acted rightly by exiling us. So the first kind of element of confession is Daniel states that God is the one with righteousness, not them. You've acted rightly by exiling us, God. You've acted rightly by putting us to open shame. Israel is the open spectacle of the world and being in exile because they have rebelled against God. And no greater humiliation would be upon an, a nation than being conquered by a foreign power and having its citizens expelled from their actual city. And they're saying, we've been put to open shame rightly. And so an element of confession that we see is, you can go ahead and put up point A for me, is Daniel rightly states that righteousness is on God's side. So when you confess your sin, you, you rightly openly state to God, righteousness is on your side, not mine. I'm the one that's the sinner. I'm the one who has, he says, committed treachery, as he says in verse 8, at the end of verse 7, because of the treachery that we've committed against you. They are experiencing the open shame because of their treachery. They're guilty of this because they violated the oath and the promise of the covenant that they were supposed to keep with God. 
And so that, that's what we should have in our hearts and minds when we confess our sin. We, we should always recognize that God is on the right side of righteousness and we aren't. And when we confess our sin, we're, we're openly stating that, that all of our hope is in him. Now, this is where it gets really cool. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness because we have rebelled against him. So in confession, Daniel is appealing to, as you can see, to the Lord belong mercy and forgiveness. And so the second element of confession is this. Go to B. Daniel appeals to God's, now I put it in plural on purpose, mercies and forgivenesses. I know that's not a word. And you're thinking, that, what are you doing? It's in the plural in the Hebrew. It's written in our English, mercy and forgiveness, but it's actually in the plural in the Hebrew, mercy and forgivenesses. And so I wanted to put it there just to give it the emphasis, meaning that God has given them mercy and forgiveness in two qualities, thus being in great measure, like whenever he forgives, he forgives a lot, and in great frequency, as in he continually does it. So it's plural to show that God's mercy and forgiveness is both great measure and great frequency. And Daniel appeals to his mercies and his forgivenesses. I think I put an extra S in there. But my point is, you get it, is that um, he realizes that there's no other fount to go to, right? We go to the fount of the Lord and he overflows to, to us with mercy and forgiveness. And so in your... In your confession, appeal to the mercy and the forgiveness of God. This is the reason why I like that illustration before. Because fathers love their children and want to overflow with mercy and forgiveness towards their children. Ferguson says, um, by his covenant, he brings us into his family. And as a father, uh, God takes pleasure in the requests of his children when they appeal to his covenant character. And so you can go to the Lord and appeal to him by his mercies and his forgivenesses. And so when you confess your sin, that's what you should do. Further, you can see, and go ahead and put up number C, uh, letter C. Daniel recognized that they have transgressed God's law. This is in verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. And so... When we confess, we, we should recognize verbally that we have transgressed the law of God. We have, if you know the scripture specifically, then list it as you pray it. And not because God needs chapter and verse, like he doesn't know it. He wrote the book, of course. But so that you know, that you are aware, not just of what you've done, but of the overflow of mercy for the forgiveness of that that you've been given in Christ. And then maybe one of the most important parts is in verses 12 through 14, this is in their confession. He confesses, D, that he ultimately has not, put up number D, that he has not uh, entreated the favor of God. In our confession, we should recognize that we haven't entreated the favor of God. Seventy years had gone by, and none of them were repentant for their sin, besides Daniel. They had not entreated the favor of God. And so Daniel recognizes if the 70 years is over and we're going to go back to our land, what would be the point of going back to the land if when we go back to the land, our hearts are not actually connected to the Lord? We don't return to the land. Our hearts must return to God. And so he understands this. And so he says we need to entreat the favor of God. Daniel can't 
run from this inescapable truth that it's not really so much about getting to go back to the land. It's that your heart needs to actually go back to the Lord. And so he says, we're not guilty of having to leave Jerusalem and be in Babylon and then come back to the land. He says, we're guilty that we didn't entreat your favor. We should have always wanted your favor, your, your presence and your forgiveness and your mercy and having you in our lives. And he says that you can do this by two things, 13. You can see them both in 13. As it is written, the law of Moses, this calamity has come upon us, yet we've not entreated the favor of the Lord. Here it is, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. We should have confessed our sins, turning them from our iniquities, and we should have and continually should be reflecting on your faithfulness, which is gaining insight by your truth. You've always been faithful, God, and we should remember that. So what can we learn here from Daniel's confession as we look at this? While these are specifics about Israel, there are principles that we can apply to our own personal life here as Remedy Church or as a member of the church in 2021 as you walk through your life. Um, One commentator, I love this name, Herman Veldkamp, he says this, What distinguishes us from the world is not that that we are less wicked, but that by the grace of God we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and that we confess our sins. The church is the only body on earth that confesses sins. Where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer the church. And so what we can learn is this. The church should be the chief confessors of sins because we're the ones that are aware of the word of the Lord. And so this is not because we have to continually think that we're losing our salvation and we have to regain it back through confession and repentance. That's not the gospel. We've been already been given that in Christ. It's because the evidence of having a new heart now, uh, as 2 Corinthians 5, 17, evidence of being a new creation in Christ, having a new heart, being given a new spirit, is being aware of the ever-present sin that we have and hating it with the same hatred as God hates sin. And that is... Um, evidence to us that we are believers. And of course, this flies in the face of the self-esteem, self-esteem cult, cult uh, that thinks that you need to have high self-esteem. We are actually ever presently knowing that we are sinners and we hate that sin in us, but we also continually know that we are a child of God and that we've been forgiven of that sin. And so it calls us to simultaneously be two kind of Two diff- in our mind, almost two different things. We're, we're perpetually broken-hearted people because of our sin, but simultaneously also the most joyful people because of the gospel because we've been forgiven of our sin. And that's how we will walk through this life for the rest of our lives. But in that, we see this fourth element. It's let our prayers contain confession and repentance. Um, Luther has been famously quoted by saying, all of the Christian life is one of repentance. And it's not because you're losing your salvation and getting it again. It's just because you're totally aware of the goodness of God. All right, lastly, um, number five. This is where we go to ourselves. So we've seen adoration and confession. We're kind of skipping that thanksgiving or in the A, the appreciation and going to ourselves. So number five, let your prayers contain the elements of petitions. And this is, this is the supplication or thinking of yourself and like, my, this is what I need help in. And so Daniel's going to uh, think about himself now and try to say, these are the things that, that I want to bring before you as petitions for me or for, for us Israel. Now, usually uh, when I pray, my concerns, my petitions are very 
me-centered. It's hard not to have petitions that are pretty me-centered. But Daniel somehow is able to make his petitions, which are me-centered-ish, God, very God-centered, me-centered-ish. It's amazing how he does this. All of his things that he wants are because he wants God to be great and God to, to, to uh, be awesome. So it's pretty, it's pretty, he wants God to do things. He doesn't necessarily want things to happen in his life. I found it pretty, pretty astounding here, the me-centeredness of his, I'm sorry, the God-centeredness of his uh, petitions. So if you go to uh, verse 15, uh, well, I'll read 14. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought um, it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, verse 15. So this is the section where we go into, And now, our Lord, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself at this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because... Of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all the nations. So this, this idea of becoming a byword, he's asking God, the first thing is, God, let your wrath turn away from us. So the first element of his petition is he's asking God to turn away. You can go ahead and put up the, the four elements in, in point A there. Um, four elements of Daniel's petitions. Number A, there's four on, under, under five as well. Um, that Daniel asked for God to turn away his anger, God's anger to turn away from him. There you go. Um, and so his primary request as we look at this is that he's saying, um, based on your goodness that I've seen you do in the past, God, where you've done this, I'm asking you now uh, to do it again. Turn away your anger from us. If your anger is turned away, then we presumably don't have to be in exile anymore and we can be restored back to Jerusalem. And so... Uh, and he's wanting this to happen primarily because he, he's concerned about the glory of God. And so we see that in verses 15 and 16. According to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from us. And then he goes into the next thing where he asks for something. In verse 17, he asks specifically for God to make his face to shine upon them in the sanctuary. Look at verse 17. You can go ahead and put up point B. Uh, Daniel asked for God to make his face shine upon the sanctuary. It says this in verse 17. Now, therefore, O God... Um, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. So see, these are still very God-centered petitions. Like, turn away your wrath, God. Make your face to shine upon our sanctuary for your own sake. Interestingly, the request that Daniel uh, of doing this is not for the benefit directly of Israel. It's for the benefit of God. As he says in verse 17, Now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his pleas for mercy for your own sake. Not for me, but for your own sake. Make your face to shine upon the sanctuary. So Daniel is actually pleading with God to put his, dis his glory on display for all the nations. Um, Sidney Grudena says, the neighboring nations will think that God's Israel right now at this point is weak. He can't even protect his own temple and his own city. And so for God's own sake, Daniel is pleading with God to let his face to shine uh, upon the desolate sanctuary. Um, so what does this mean when we say, let your face shine upon your sanctuary? What does that really even mean when we say, God, let your face shine upon us? Daniel, of course, is quoting uh, number six is what we sometimes will quote in our benediction at the end of our services. And what he's saying is when God makes his face to shine upon his people, 
Sidney Grenada says, he smiles upon them, his anger is turned away, and he seeks to now bless them and keep them. And so this is what he's asking. Lord, I just want to be uh, inside of your blessings, and I want to be in right relationship with you. And so Daniel's pleading for Yahweh to reverse everything that's been happening and to restore his own reputation among the nations. God, restore your reputation among the nations. I want them to see how glorious you are. Genuine believers should have this at heart. Genuine Christians should have the glory of God at heart. We want for all people, not just Christians, but non-Christians to see the glory of God. And he's saying that the reputation of Yahweh should actually be a part, a driving part of our prayers. God, we want your reputation, your renown, and your glory to be put on display. That's the petition he has. He asked for God to put his 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 uh, glory on display. So if you want to say, well, how do I pray like that? You can say this. We pray, God, your glory will be put even more on display when you save that marriage. So save it, Lord, for your glory. Or we can say, God, your glory will be even more on display when you save that lost loved one. So do all that's necessary for them to come to know Christ for your own glory. That's what he's doing. And so God's reputation um, is on, uh, kind of on display for them to be able to see. And so we want his reputation to be clear for uh, all the world to see. And Daniel's pleading for that to happen. He also, in, in the fourth, third way, he pleads for God not to be deaf to their pain nor blind to their anguish in verse 18. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you, but because of your righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And so to be sure here, uh, God is not, in the human sense, deaf or blind. This is called anthropomorphic language. This is Daniel using uh, human language for us to be able to understand God has done no wrong here. It's not like God is absent-minded and forgetful and blind. And Daniel's like, hey, God, look around and see. It's not, he's not pleading for God to stop being deaf and blind because he's just this old man who's absent-minded and neglectful that needs to be reminded of something he's forgotten. That is not the case at all. Uh, that can be the way that you can think about ourselves, right? We can do that. But that is not what's going on. This is not an indictment on God at all. It's a plea for God to be merciful in spite of their present condition of sin. See and act and cause us to repent and ashes and come back to us. We want to be back in our city. So, Lord, do something mighty. This is a, a very bold prayer that he's praying to say, restore Israel completely, God. And it's totally dependent upon your grace to do it. That's what we need. So, um, when you are petitioning the Lord, pray like that. Go to, go to number C. God, don't be deaf to my pain and blind to my anguish. You're not indicting God. You're just saying, I know you see and I know you know what's going on. So move God right now in my life. And then lastly, uh, in verse 19, you can just hear, oh Lord, hear, oh Lord, forgive, oh Lord, pay attention and act. Do not. Don't delay or delay not for your own sake, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So just ask for God. You can go ahead and put up D. Ask for God to hear, forgive, pay attention, and act, and do it fast. Like, do it quickly, Lord. And so when you um, go to the Lord 
in petition, the pinnacle, I think, maybe of this section is him saying, God, move for your own sake, as it says in verse 9, for your own sake. And so Daniel's desire for God to forgive is for God's glory to be put on, dis- on display. That's what he wants the most. Put on your display of your glory. Now, um, as we finish that section and you've learned about prayer, one of the things I want us to always ask as we're going through, especially Old Testament books, is how does then, therefore, this section, Daniel chapter 9, point us to Jesus? How does it point us to Jesus? We've already talked about one way specifically, which is because of the gospel, it points us to our need for Christ to be able to enter into his presence and even be able to pray in the first place. The reason why we can pray is because of Jesus. But in another way, I want you to see this. This chapter shows us the man of God, Daniel, interceding for the people of God. He's interceding for the people of God. And as I've already said, we see from chapters 1 through 6 that Daniel was a righteous man from a young age to his old age. He, was, he walked with God, and he was definitely blessed by God. And yet, when he prayed, he identifies himself with his people in their sin and making their sin his sin. He made their sin his sin. And the truer and greater Daniel does this for us, but on a much, much larger scale. Jesus came to earth and identified himself with those that he wanted to save. And he substituted himself in death, taking our place on the cross and making our sin his sin by bearing the punishment of all of our sins on the cross. Just as Daniel interceded for Israel, Jesus now intercedes for us at the right hand of God the Father. Romans 8.34, Hebrews 7.25. And he teaches us that he's right there at the, inter- at the right hand of the Father, always interceding for us. Our great high priest is continually pleading our case before God the Father. And that's how Daniel is doing for Israel, and that's what Jesus does for us continually. Jesus experienced open shame as Israel had because of the cross. God's love for us um, now for overflows with mercies and forgivenesses to us. And it's clearly demonstrated and most clearly demonstrated to us by the sacrifice of his son on the cross for our behalf. And so Jesus died for us and forgave our sin. And further, the best part of the gospel is that he was raised from the dead. He was resurrected and he ascended on high to the throne and lives there forever. And he's coming back and he's going to set up his kingdom, which is not just a little bit better, but infinitely better than any earthly kingdom ever. And so now we're invited to that throne room that he is seated at. Right now, we can boldly approach the throne room of God through prayer because of Jesus. We can actually go to God the Father and tell him everything that's on your mind. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this short teaching in the book of Daniel on prayer. And I pray that for all of us, Lord, that it would be um, put within us a a deep desire to want to be a people of prayer. Um, We know that we're supposed to, and we know that perhaps we we do here and there, or maybe some of us pray all the time. But Lord, I pray that you would use this to help us see um, what our prayers can do and how deeply desire you want us to be people of prayer. I pray that you would use your word to cause us to pray, that we would adore you, that we would confess our sin, Lord, that we would um, realize that we can come to you with a humble and contrite heart because of Jesus, and that we have direct access to God the Father continually all the time. 
Um, so help us, because of that, always want to pray to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.